Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Corner Store Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Koval. In the building, as always, is Mercedes Zapata, the photographer, social media maven. We got to get her mic on. Uh, maybe like a wandering lavalier. DJ Cashier just set it up uh, to, so, so we can succeed. Max the Snack Tour is uh, waiting at the Young Chicago Authors Gallery on some art. But in the building, to start off 2020 proper, we have incredible guests with us. Um, this is our this is the first time we've recorded in, in uh, the new Roman calendar year, and we're doing it with family in the building. Uh, we have a longtime friend of mine, uh, someone who has uh, looked out for the creative industry in Chicago for... Uh, decades now and uh, an, an incredibly talented musician himself ira antillis is in the building and the longtime homie who is a, a poet a rapper uh, she really does it all and now is uh you know has been an, been acting but is taking her uh, all of the skills that she uh, has been crafting and perfecting over the years to the steppenwolf stage we have nikki lynette as well in the building y'all welcome to the corner store great to be here thank you so much for having us that was such a good introduction no thank you guys <laughs> thank you guys so you know um we do uh have some snacks for y'all max the snack tour usually secures the snacks but uh tonight he called upon the mighty mercedes zapata to do the deed and so uh, mercedes for y'all secured you uh, a few things one we have um nikki for you we got some health aid uh, kombucha pomegranate I know yes you, kombucha we were talking we were talking before you were a kombucha snob <laughs> I um Ira, i don't know if you like this uh I, I like this okay tea, yeah right? or, organic little honest little honey green honest green yes. tea um and then and then in addition uh nikki you said you were vegan so um uh, Mercedes got you some fruit and nut trail mix. Yeah. It has uh, dried pineapples, banana chips, a bunch of things. Ira, I don't know, man. Cheez Its? I mean, we'll see. You know, let's, <laughs> oh, uh, okay. I mean, you know, you could, you, you could, you could re gift them too. You know what I mean? Uh, but feel free to indulge <laughs> now, share Thank them, you, you know, so what have much. you. Um, no, Mercedes, listen. It's the thought that counts. You know what I mean? Uh, I know a lot of people who like Cheez Its. Love it. They're mostly like 10 and under, the people that I know. <laughs> but, um, you know, I was young at heart. Uh, y'all, um, let's, so let's just start, you know, let, we'll mention it again at the end, but, but you guys are here together with a purpose because, because why? Tell us, tell us what is coming up at the Steppenwolf Theater where, that people in the city of Chicago can go see. So um, to make a long story somewhat short, uh, I've known Nikki for 20 years because uh, some people might know I, I used to do a lot of music for commercials. And when you do music for commercials, you sort of have to have a lot of hands because someday they'll come in and say, hey, we need somebody who sounds like whomever. So we need a, a young female hip-hop rap who can write. And I met Nikki, and uh, we started working together many, many years ago. And then, um, you know, I thought, you know, we, we're... We, we do a lot of work together, and then she had a little bit of a... I always say she was the happiest person I ever met, and then some things happened, and she wasn't so happy. And during that period of time, uh, she had slipped, in, and I'll let her tell it in a minute, and I was trying to figure out how to help her. And I was sort of at my wit's end, even though my wife's a therapist and been in therapy a lot. And, and one day at the Bongo Room on Milwaukee... I mean, there were times I would call her, and I didn't know if she was alive. I mean, she'll tell you that. And I said, you know, you, you know, you become an, somewhat of an advocate for mental health and depression. And even though she was still in it, I'm like, why don't you? I, I was gr grasping at straws, and I'm like, well, why don't you write it, write about it, and we'll get it produced. 
And I don't think, like I said, write a scene a week. I was just trying to motivate her to do something because I didn't know how. Right. right? And then, uh, I don't know, about eight months later, I'm sitting in the studio and she called and she said, I have the first act. Hmm. I'm like, come over now. Whatever I'm doing <laughs> now. And she, she walks in with her computer and she had like, and she does the show. And, and as Kevin, you might know, I've done theater and and I'm like... I mean, you have a long pedigree in the I'm, arts, I'm right? Like, I mean, Broadway to... I mean, I, I want to talk about all the things you've made, but yeah, I mean, And I'm like, wow, this is, this is amazing. And I know it's amazing, but to confirm that I'm right, I've been working with David Bell, the head of Northwestern's theater department. I'm going to call David, and we're going to go to Evanston, and you're going to do it in his living room and see if I'm right. And sure enough, we go to David, and, and David director, writer, like royalty. And he said, that's amazing. I have a theater festival called Amped. And sure, we have a slot for the fourth show next year. Let me put her in. And, and then I'll let, we do the show. And then we did it last May. Yeah, it was in May. And then all of a sudden, um, I always believe, and I'm sort of the elder statesman here, you know, you plant your seed, it will, it will flourish, it will grow, you know, and I'm like, we're going to do this, you know, my goal obviously is, I think this should really be seen and heard, and uh, somebody was able to get a video of the show to somebody at Steppenwolf, and they're like, let's do it in the Lookout series. So, from two years ago, when she could barely get out of bed, here we are. Right. I'll let her talk. It's pretty crazy. It's When he tells the story, it sounds like, like this really triumphant story, but... I feel like I stumbled onto this. Um, when he first told me to write the play, I honestly think he was telling me that just to get me creating, just to get me back into the process of doing what we love. I don't know if you, Kevin, have ever gone periods without creating, but like since I've ever known of you, you've just been like this creative force, so I'm sure you can understand. When you get to the point where you're no longer inspired to create, it's it would very, be hard. Oof. Yeah. Yeah, and it's yeah. a very dark place. Yeah. Because like, who are we without... Our art. And so, like, after I went through my mental health breakdown, I had to confront that I had no identity outside of Nikki Lynette, outside of this artist, and never really had even wanted one. Um, so I went through some really challenging things, and uh, it, it knocked me on my butt. And so, you know, I currently, like, I, I'm a mental health advocate, not because, like, uh, I believe in... Uh, and, and advocating for those things because I do I do believe in it but I live with a mental illness I have PTSD and an anxiety disorder it made me a totally different person and I had to get to know myself all over again and so like people don't know that yeah I'm out here and I'm a per- I smile I talk my stuff you know what I'm saying I'm, I'm fun you're fun right yeah. you've always been fun thank you yeah but I still like there are things that I, I struggle with like Things that I don't even know how to articulate, like things that impact me every day. Like every day I'm in every happy moment. I'm afraid the person that I'm attached to might die because that's what PTSD does. Like, you know, I experienced so much loss and so much abandonment back to back that every day I'm having to remind myself to stop bracing for the impact of somebody's death. So like that's what it means to be to live with PTSD and I'm a suicide survivor too. So this is stuff I couldn't figure out how to live every day with this being my reality if I couldn't just be honest. And so that's why I started talking about it in my art 
and in my music. And so when he told me to write the play, I'm like, dang, I don't know how to write no play, you know? And so even though you've been on stage really most of your life, like right? Legit, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I used to do like these little musical theater things in high school, but they were not very structured. And like, like this is Ira Antelis. If he tells me like, I'm like, oh my God, I got to write a play play. You know what I'm saying? So what I did was I had this idea, the seed of an idea and um, Pussy Riot just happens to be fans of my work. So when they called me out the blue and asked me to open for the first three days of the American tour, I was like, man, like I haven't performed in mad long. The only music I had was like the stuff I had started creating while I was in depression just to get myself back into the game, like to feel like I hadn't released none of it. And so I'm performing songs. I never did before for an audience that don't know who I am. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to workshop this idea that I have for the play. I'm going to do it on stage at a punk concert. And I, I invited yeah. Ira out. And he saw, like, people went up for it. It went it, it, it went up. So, I'm And like, that was your first time performing material that eventually would make it on. Into the play. Yeah, into the play. The material of the songs. The uh, you know, and, and then what I, what I, and it was at the Beat Kitchen. And... And again, I didn't know a lot about this at all, but um, she, I, th- I think even so, during the, some of the songs, she would say, if you've ever been depressed, whatever, raise your hand. And I'm telling you, like, over half the audience went up. I'm yeah. like, they they could all relate. And I'm like, okay, we're on to something here. Yeah, that's a new call and response, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, like, that's my thing. Like, I... So like like since then like I'm I'm a talented girl like I better be that's all I ever did so when I like I've since then like I've been opening for major artists and I do my mental health advocacy like that's what I do and so I got to become very comfortable with having uncomfortable conversations in ways that are engaging I'm actually doing a documentary called Happy Songs About Unhappy Things. Like, that's my approach. Like, why do having this conversation have to be this heavy and clinical thing? When we talk about losing weight, our fitness goals, we ain't like, I'm gonna lose 15 pounds. Like, it's not sad. You know what I'm saying? So, like, if I say, like, okay, you know what? Like, I I always tell people, I don't think I'm always gonna have PTSD. I think I'm gonna get over it because I see the changes in my brain. Like, I see myself able to handle it better so i think one day i i can't cure it and like why can't we be happy about our mental wellness goals how come we can't have a positive perspective around that you know what i'm saying so many of us suffer i think the new statistics are one in six people experience mental illness in a year one in 25 experience mental illness that causes some sort of functional impairment everybody has experienced depression in some regard at some point, even if they didn't necessarily have it themselves, they interacted with somebody else that was impacted. And one thing that is very important for all of us to understand is that we all have mental wellness. Like, just like we all have physical wellness, right? We all have our body. We all have our health. Mental wellness is a thing. And we all need to be concerned about our mental hygiene. If you wash your butt, think about how you're going to, like, Keep your mind clean. Keep your mind on point. These are very important things that we need to be thinking about in the culture. And so I am actively trying to create a space in the culture where it is comfortable to have those conversations. That's right. So let's run it back because both of you have, you know, these really beautiful histories, some of which I'm privy to, some of which I know about, some of which intersects with my own. Um, But just just to begin, because Nikki, you know, I, I know you from being a rapper, like from yeah. like fucking spitting these bars, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so you you mentioned high school, but you know, wh- where did you come up? Where did you get your start? I am one of the prodigies of Brother Mike. Yeah, like so many others. 
I came up like I was I don't know if y'all remember, but I was like in high school in this group called the Poetry. And I was like sneaking in the clubs and like using Issa Star's ID to like get into places. I was like so underage. Um And how did you meet how did you meet Brother Mike? He found me when I was like fifteen at a black woman's expo with my mom and I think I looked cool. And he just came over and talked to me and was like, do you rap? And I'm like, how did you know? And I clearly looked like I was a rapper Rapper, or something. (laughs) Yeah. So and what's interesting is that I've always been a singer, too. But I'm not known for that. I'm known for being a rapper. My first mixtape was hosted by Lupe Fiasco. And then my next mixtape series is when I kind of stepped out like, okay, I'm an alternative black girl and I'm a rap over rock beats. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You started to freak the style, really. Yeah. Yeah. When when did you when did you well, first of all, where'd you go to high school? I went to Kenwood and then I went to Lions Township and then I dropped out and then <laughs> I went back to Lions Township and graduated. And then when did your when did that first mixtape drop? Because I remember that when that came. The out. Lupe mixtape dropped twenty ten nine around there, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I've been in the game for a minute, minute. Like yeah. I've and I've never had a day job. That's all I ever did. Right. All right. Yeah. So, all right. So, so twenty. What, what were you doing in twenty ten, and what what was the impact of putting that out into the world, and then not having a gig? I mean, what you know, just take us through. I guess the decade. I don't know if you've been th- thinking about it like that. Uh, so, what happened in two thousand? Hmm, was it twenty oh nine? It may have even been earlier, like maybe twenty oh five. When I dropped that first mixtape, I was young. Like, I had people telling me what to do. I had DJs from the radio station giving me beats I should rap over, and. You know, I can rap over anything I could spit. I'm a Chicago MC. We spit. You know what I'm saying? We have versatility. It's what we are. Not bragging, not saying nothing about no other city, but like this is who we are. Yeah. And so, I, like the fact that I was a lyricist was well received, but I don't feel like, like, and I got fans from it, but I never felt like it really separated me from anybody else. Like, why would anybody listen to me when they already know Shauna, who in the game and is is proven and, you know, was like doing major stuff. Like, so I didn't really feel expressed, but it got me gigs like ghostwriting for other male rappers who was paying. You want to talk about it? You want to name names? Mm, no, I'm not. Right, yeah, I'm not. Enough. But there are people hey, in listen, the city. Yeah. I'm not going to name names, but there okay. are people in the city, people like Ruben Trejo, like people who opinion who who you can trust that will tell you people like Matt Hennessy that will tell you I was ghostwriting for these dudes yeah and you know but I didn't like it like they would I would ghostwrite for them I wouldn't get recognition I get a little bit of money to pay my rent and bills and then they would go get some big DJ like Khaled or drama to do drops and it would look like they the man but I'm the man you know what I'm saying And I didn't like it. Yeah. And so and then the stuff that I wanted to do, nobody would make me the kind of beats I wanted because I wanted stuff that genre bended. Like I wanted stuff outside of this. So I started making my own beats. And at first they weren't that great. But then they started getting better. And then I started doing competitions with my beats that I made myself. And then I won second place in one. And then MTV offered me a music licensing deal. And then the person I was recording with tried to say that he owned my masters. So then Ira got me completely away from that situation. I owed nobody nothing but i had no music so then i went to matt hennessy and said look i got this much money i need to make beats <laughs> and me and matt have kind of been partnered on everything ever since because that was the beginning of my music licensing deal and that was when i learned to monetize my music and it was because of ira actually like when i first got into the game i was doing a lot of voiceovers and uh so i learned to be professional i learned proper recording techniques i got to work with people like jeff morrow like he became like my vocal coach and the person who 
got me through sessions. I started training with him. And so I was able to develop chops that I still use to this day. Mm. And so I learned to monetize my music through music licensing. And a lot of people license now, but people don't do it the way that I do it. I maintain relationships and I treat my catalog as an asset to help benefit other things that I have going on. So I'm just now starting to license the music that's in my play right now. This play has been in production for two years. I ain't released none of that stuff except a couple. Like one of the songs that's in my play is called My Mind Ain't Right. I don't know if you heard of that show Work in Progress that's out right now. I license to them. Mm. I licensed it only to them. The last time it was in the show, it was in She's Gotta Have It for Spike Lee. I don't just put myself out there for every single thing. I'll put it in projects that I like and projects that speak to my brand. And I think that that's how artists need to be doing it instead of just accepting a license, a cheap little license fee for everything that they offer you. Like, do you connect with this show? Do you believe in the show? Who are the people that created the show? Do they know who you are? And so I know I'm saying like a mile. No, it's good. Well, well, how how did you develop such eclectic tastes, even sonically? I mean, you said you were wanting to rhyme on beats that were not necessarily traditionally, you know, you know, breakbeat, boom bap type of beats. How did you develop that kind of uh, sensibility? When I was coming up, I had a best friend. Her name is Elaine and she was gay and she was, you know, when you are gay or when you are any anywhere within the LGBT conversation, you are so fringe in your community that it kind of pushes you out into trying new things before a whole bunch of other people don't. Like I'm cisgender heterosexual, but my best friend was gay. And so and she was an alternative girl. And so she would force me to listen to all this alternative music. And at first I didn't like it because I'm like, man, like, like this, this, you know what I'm saying? Like this, but, but, but I when when she showed me Portishead, mm. when she showed me Fiona Apple, when she mm. showed me Tori Amos, when she showed me Tricky and let me listen to Max and Quay, I was like, look, I have found myself. So, you know what I'm saying? And like, I'm a singer and I never sounded right. Like singing the type of stuff. It's like R&B. I don't got that soft type of voice, but you give me a, a Portishead song, I'm so tired of playing, playing with his bow and arrow. I'm going to give my heart away. Like, I could take that and freak it and make it be like me. And so that was, like, just finding the type, like, it, it, I fit so comfortably in that. And and, and from there, it's like, I really developed, my mom always listened to some of everything. And so I love classic rock. I love Guns N' Roses. Unskinny Bop is one of the first songs from like like I love Aerosmith. I love all of that stuff. Well, she came to the studio one day. She said, "I'm going to rap on this Guns N' Roses song," and I almost <laughs> fell out of the chair. I'm like, "What?" It's right. fun. Right. It's fun. It got me so much racism. <laughs> well, it's, the it's angry whites were mad. Mad, but but it's funny because also I mean at you know early on you know that that early '80s period and and even before that really when. Um, uptown and downtown in New York were beginning to co-mingle. There was much more crossover between the punk scene and the yeah. early hip-hop scene. And, you know, I, I think of someone like Rick Rubin who took, mm. you know, the sounds that he was getting from the punk clubs, but mm. having a love for hip-hop and wanting to begin to produce in that way was was very much about that genre blending and bending and everything like that. So in, in some ways it's like, it's, it's, um, 
it, it's not truthful to say that these things have been existing segregated for so long when they've been intimate you know when, when hip-hop yeah. and punk have been in and scraped against each other you know in in people's ears for for such a long period of time um but it's interesting that you would you know through through your homie you would you would come to appreciate a different kind of music because in some ways it is about exposure too right yeah. like especially for i think hip-hop heads in chicago is like you lock in and you're like i have to like this this is it you know what I mean? I just I'm, let me eat these beats, type of, you know, yeah. and then and then, but that could be a, it's a rigidity that I think I, it's something that I appreciate about younger folks that I know that they are more diverse than some of my peers in terms of their listening tastes. Yeah. Um. So I want to I want to come back to that, but I, but I you know you come at this uh, in a very in a different way. You've been involved in hip hop in Chicago for a long time, but not because you were. Initially, hip hop head, right? <laughs> right, right. right yeah. I, I mean, you you are you are a formally uh, trained pianist and composer, correct? Right, and and so um, I guess I, w- I want to get to the point that you all meet, and I want to know about about that and this this decade long relationship or two decade long relationship, close to two decades, yeah, right, yeah, almost, yeah. Um, but but you know, uh, yeah, just uh, you, you. Where do you come from? Yeah, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, right, right, right. And so, how did you how did you get your start playing? You know, it's uh, as my mother will, will tell you. You know, the crib was next to the piano, right. so it, which she is was true. Predestined, she knew you like and, you're going to play piano. And I would piano. be banging, and you know, and all of a sudden, you know, for four, I would, you know, I, actually, I've never really talked about this, but I would take lessons, and uh, then I ended up playing in the school assemblies, and then when there were shows, I would accompany. I was just more like musical director, and then uh, lost when I went to college. And uh, this is a true story because I'm, I'm actually working with him right now. And I'm like, you know, maybe, and I had never written music, maybe I'll be like a jazz musician. Play, you know. And first day of college, upstate New York, I walk into the practice rooms. It's, for people who don't know, there, if you're a musician, there's like these rooms. There's like 20 of them sealed off and everybody goes to practice three, four hours a day. And I'm listening through the room and there's a guy playing piano. I'm like, oh, and this is like the first day. I'm like, Wow. I can't even do that. Like, I knew he was amazing, and uh, we became very close friends. He played for, uh, for Tony Bennett, for Sinatra. That's I'm like, your buddy. I, I, yeah, leave yeah. Me, yeah. Actually, we're doing it on a project in a couple of months. Nice. Yeah. I'm like, I could never do that. And as a last resort, true, um, I started to write music. I'm like, okay, let me try writing music. And I found it. And that's sort of what happened. That was sort of my voice. I could be a songwriter. Mm-hmm. Then... Then I realized, okay, well, how are you going to make a living? And uh, through some relationships, there were people doing a lot of commercials in New, in New York. And I got a, I, I begged and pleaded with a, a friend's father for a job and sort of learned the jingle industry. I'm like, wow, I could pay my bills with this, but then do what I really want to do, which is like write songs and do theater. And, and I, that's how I've spent my life. Yeah, you've been doing that both. I mean, all of those things for, for a long time now. Of yeah. course, wh- what brought you to Chicago? You know, so when I went to NYU, I was actually with a kid today, and, and I said, where do you go to school at NYU? He says, I, I'm at Steinhardt. I'm like, I used to teach there before, way before he was born. Um, and for my thesis project, I did a musical. Uh, you know, I wrote this show called Larger Than Life, and the lady who was choreographing it originally was from Chicago, moved home here, back here, and she said, "You know, I, th- I know a theater in Chicago. If you co- if you ever come here, we'll put it on." And I came here, and in those days, I think they still do it. If for th- and we're going to actually do it for Nikki at some point. Is if you need to raise money for a show, you have what's called a backers audition. You get you know people who are somewhat well off, and or, or and you sit around and you play them some songs. 
And we were doing backers auditions. Um, I sort of remember the apartment, and there was a guy, his name, first name was Gary. He said, you know, I don't know if you ever do commercials, but there's a magazine called Screen, and it lists all the music commercial houses. And I'm like, well, not only have I done commercials, because I did it in New York, I worked for, like, the guy in New York. So I started calling people here. And because of who I worked for, everybody was willing to meet with me. Mm. They're like, you work for Sid Wallachin? I'm like, yeah. And so, and I'm like, but I'm here now, and I'm thinking of moving here, and that's what happened. Right. And then, of course, you, you were running the studio at Leo Burnett for... Well, so I, so I did my own... Yeah, so we did commercials, mm-hmm. and, and I'm pretty modest, but we had an amazing amount of success because my partner... Uh, Steve Schaefer, who was really brilliant and, and, and unfortunately got ill and passed away, he's like, well, if we're stuck doing commercials, why don't we, and we both want to do records, let's make them sound like records. And he knew how to do that. Right. And we were really, I think, and if not the first, the first to actually do that. So if you wanted to sound like, and we got sued a couple of times, if you want to sound like Janet Jackson, we sounded like Janet Jackson. Like, because Steve was like, okay, what's the snare drum? Things I never thought of. Like, we're going to match the snare drum. We're going to match the kit. Like, and that's how we took off. Mm. Um, this is true, I wonder. I, I feel like it is, maybe. You, you've written some very well-known jingles. <laughs> yes, that's true. Can we mention any of them? You know, the one everybody, you know, I've written, the, the prize in, in jingles for when I grew up, and actually the guy I worked for wrote, in New York, wrote, you, you deserve a break today at McDonald's. Oh, wow. Which was like the one. Yeah. And I, it was always my goal uh, to write McDonald's songs. So, um, which you've done. Uh, which I've done. A I've bunch done of I times. did three. I did, yeah. uh, I did the Ronald McDonald song, uh, 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 I have you heard today, uh, uh, Put a Smile On. Oh, wow. It, it, my daughter was growing up, it was all over the air. Everybody, come on, put a smile on. And then I did uh, What You Want Is What You Get at McDonald's Today. I didn't even know that, dude. And then, um, <laughs> but the big one that everybody knows I always talk about is I did the Michael Jordan like Mike, if I could be like Mike. <laughs> yeah, I right. I like to be like Mike. Right. Everyone, that, that still goes. That's right, that's still, still goes. I think we're about to hear it a ton with All Star Game Weekend mm. coming up. Actually, you know, the, the, and they keep relicensing it or re- redoing I'm different sure. versions. And, yeah, I, but there's not really a brand. At some point, I haven't sort Worked, of yeah, of course. Yeah, and for when you were in that studio at Leo Burnett, a lot of uh, rappers so, and well, sorry to yeah, go ahead. So, no. so I have my own studio, and then it, this is a true story. Also, you know, you develop relationships with clients. And thanks to my dad, I, I just learned really early on that it's about the relationships. Yeah. Uh, and it, so besides the music, it's it's really, as you know, and um, the lady who was who ran Chicago, this is true, and she, uh, is Cheryl, was Cheryl Berman. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I got to work with Cheryl Berman. And, uh, I could, and I worked with everybody, and I could never get Cheryl Berman to work with me. And one day she called, and... Um, she said, you know, we're pitching this off for Disney. Uh, and we had never really worked together before. Uh, it's for their 25th anniversary at Disney Disney World. Uh, you want to do it? I'm like, yeah, not only will we do it, we'll win. And we competed against everybody. And we, we did. Uh, wow. We remember the magic. And actually, they still play it at the parks. And we became really close. And we worked together a lot. But Cheryl was at Leo Burnett. And she was so busy. Like, she couldn't come 10 blocks to... That was before digital stuff. Like, you'd write something, you have people to hear it. So, uh, one day she said, you know, why don't you come to Leo Burnett? I'll just build you a studio, and this way I only have to ride the elevator down to hear stuff. And that's what happened. So, I'm like, you know what? I've never done corporate America that way. 
let me go. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of rappers and singers and artists were eating well when you were in that post yes. in Chicago. You brought a lot of people into that studio, and is, is that how you all met? I met, yeah. yeah. I think, and I think um, I don't exactly remember. I do. I know you do. I don't. All right, well, we'll say it. Yeah, <laughs> what's the story? It was a couple commercials that they needed somebody who could kind of sing and rap on yeah. and they needed somebody that could write and i think you might have had somebody else do it at first but they wasn't done. they didn't do it right and i am <laughs> they didn't and do so, it right yeah. <laughs> yeah and so the person that i was working with at that time who shall remain nameless because i'm not gonna shade him but mm. you know mm. um he came and said like Hey, I need you to be downtown at this time right now, blah, blah, blah. Didn't tell me nothing about the money. Just told me to be ready. And I showed up and I work quick and Ira likes it when you can get the job done quick. And so I became the go-to girl for a lot of rap stuff. My first hit was a McDonald's commercial. And I was like, wait a minute, money's just showing up. And he was like, yeah, like, you know how a song can hit? A commercial can hit too. Mm. And I was like, oh my God, this is wonderful. It was my first time having money. But uh, aside from that, most people come in, it, uh, they do their work and they do it really well, and they leave. And she's like, "Now nah, I'm going to put my behind right down on this couch, <laughs> and, 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 I, and we're going to we're going to work on other things together." Yes, and, and that's how we sort of. Yes. I'm like, what? Well done. And that's how we developed a relationship. And but you, you like know. that too because you, oh, you love yeah, artists. You love working I mean, with it, artists. It was like, yeah. let's go and, right. and let's see if I can help you. Or we had written some stuff together and. Um, that's sort of what happened. So this long relationship, of course, um, you know, you go through a lot of things, but but given the content of what you're dealing with in in your show, you must really trust one another in order to be able to share this kind of emotionally vulnerable, real material with one another, and then to be collaborative artistic partners in that process. Well, two things. Uh the greatest thing about Nikki, I think, is who she is and what she does. So people say, "Oh, you, did you write the music for the show with her?" I'm like, "No, <laughs> I, I said I will be, I will produce the show. You don't have to worry about how it's going to get where. All you have to worry about is the creative stuff. I'll take it from there." I, I did one song in the show with her, but it's her thing. Uh, so I think collaboratively, she knows that. Uh, work on your art. Just work on the show, and I've got the rest covered. You know, all the logistics and everything. Which is like a collaboration. That. Oh, no, it, it is collaborative. We work really close. And I know, especially now, you know, her needs because it used to be like, you know, she needs time to sleep. All of the things that have happened to her, I can't say, like, be here in 10 minutes. Like, it doesn't work that way anymore. Like, I got to make sure she's okay in the morning. I'll call her. How are you? Even this morning, I text you. I'm like, call me when you get up. Like, it's no rush. <laughs> like, you know, before I would have been, call me now. You know? <laughs> uh, uh, so just sort of guiding her through this and making it as easy as her. So all she has to worry about is the creative stuff. So mm. it's a different kind of collaboration. And plus, like, it's, it's very organic because Ira was the person that made me go to the psychiatric hospital. Like, I was not okay. And I he was out of town. And, like, I don't have any living parents. I have Ira. So, like, I'm the closest thing to a protege he actually has. And if anybody else want to step up and compete, compete for that title, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, I'm right here. You, I could, I could, you remain in, like, battle rap stance, yeah, too. I You're do. like, and another I, thing. I okay, know, listen, right? if you want to do this, we can do this. All right? For starters. Yo, this is why everybody thinks I'm gay, I think. Because I'm like, seriously, this is why. Well, you know, <laughs> this is true story. So, cause yeah. Kevin, you know, because actually, I think we, the first time we met was up in Michigan. Mm, yeah. 
and I don't remember what it was, but uh, you know, we had been working together. And my daughter, who at the time was thirteen or fourteen, somewhere was stuck downtown, like oh, yeah. midnight in Chicago. And I'm like, and I'm eighty miles away, so I called Nick. I'm like, you got to go get her. So she's not only tight with me; she's you know, she's yeah, my family. I'm tight with his daughter. Yeah. When and I then, go to um, LA, we hang out, and we yeah. go thrifting and eat. She's my little sister. I always wanted a little sister, so. And she's super dope. She's a creative herself. But yeah, like, he's the person that made me even go to the hospital while my mom was sick. Like, he was out of town, and I called him, and I wasn't okay. She she wasn't okay. And, um, you know, my wife's a therapist, and my wife's like, I'm like, I'm really, really worried. She said, you got She's got to. So we got her to the hospital. Well, so can you, can you, I know this is some of what you get into on stage, but can you, can you tell us kind of what what happened? Like, what were, what was the the breaking point that, that got you? in and then eventually out but i mean what what were the conditions of your life that that kind of uh brought you to that point i was in a toxic relationship and uh like i i had a really tough childhood but like when i first came out like doing my thing i never talked about it and you know like i was making money i was doing my thing i was nikki lynette the badass blah 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 like so i didn't there was no need to have that conversation or bring those things up and i didn't really realize you know, suppressing things has been something I've been doing my entire life. And I didn't realize the extent to which I was doing it until, you know, I, I fell for this guy and he cheated while I was pregnant. And then I couldn't eat or sleep. So I lost my child and then I lost my mind. And, um, you know, I had attempted. He found me unconscious after I made an attempt out there. And so it was like, you know, when I finally when I, I was here and I was still in that relationship, but I was here. I was home alone. Nobody could stop me. And I felt myself about to do it. And and I'm like, and, and the only reason I even wanted to not do it was because my mom was alive and she was sick and she needed me. So I call Ira and I'm like, I'm not okay. Like, I don't know what to do. I'm not okay. And he's like, you have to go to the hospital right now. If you don't, I will call you a cab. You don't have to go in the ambulance. But if you don't go, I'm going to have to send an ambulance. I'm going to have to call 911. You have to go. And so he uh, called a, a friend of ours, Dijon. Yeah, I think you would have been. Oh, yeah, of course. So, yeah. Dijon's always in the studio, yeah. and I'm like 80 miles away, so I called Dijon and said, look, she's taking a cab, she's going to come to the studio, give her whatever money she needs, and get her so she can go to the hospital. Oh, wow. That's what and I'm I went. Okay, how long ago is this? That was in 2017. Okay. That's incredible. I mean, just to be able to have the mind about you to call somebody is really significant. But yeah. I, And then, of course, I'm sure to receive that phone call has to be especially if you're not there to answer it physically in the way that you would want to that's that's a lot that's a big call to receive and, and along with that the uh you know she what she said she she had been living in san francisco when a lot of the bad things happened and then she moved back here and it was sort of an ongoing process like i'd call her and she wouldn't answer and I, i'm telling you in my mind i'm like i don't hear for a day to i'm like what is she, is she alive yeah like i've never experienced that with anybody so um I was out of town, but I'm like, you got to go. And she, she listened. And I think that was the the beginning of the beginning to get, you know, getting her back slowly on track. It was slow, too. I mean, it was like you were one of the only people that cared about me. Like when I was in the hospital, it was you and my sister and Keisha, my best friend Keisha, that called me. Like my family wasn't calling. I didn't I wasn't getting calls from other people. It was Ira. He called more than almost more than my like as many times as my sister and my best friend did. So like, you know, my working relationship with Ira is very much it's him and it's Matt Hennessy and those like their Shout family. Matt Hennessy, who's a yeah, great guy. Yeah, that's guy. my yeah, brother. Yeah. yeah. And it was like hard because me and Matt, 
you know, like Matt is is literally like my brother. He never it's like he's like Ira for me. He never, ever turned on me. So when I stopped being the chick who was in Billboard and I stopped being a chick who was on TV and I stopped being a chick who was, you know, like being flown out to South by Southwest when I wasn't that chick no more. They still were here. Like when I came back, they stayed. They were still here. And not everybody did. But now they coming back. Like now oh, they wish course. they did. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, of course. Now they back. Right. Oh, and it ain't a good time to try me. So, <laughs> so that process of, of healing yourself is, is a long one. Um, yeah. I mean, to even, uh, you, you mentioned some therapy. But what, what are some of the steps that you underwent in order to get from that place to this place? Oh, I got on meds for a while. Yeah. I was on meds for a while. I have such a complicated relationship with meds because I've, I've never, I'm straight edge. I've never drank or smoke. I wear the straight edge ring and everything. Hey, wow. But, uh, you know, cause substance abuse runs on both sides of my family. So I don't do it, but I, I, I couldn't feel my feelings and live like I just wouldn't have made it. I could not control my mental illness. And that's the thing that people say. I think everybody's mentally ill in some capacity, but some people control it better than others. That's very ableist to say, because not, first of all, no, not everybody has mental illness. We all neurodiversity is a thing. And that's very real. We are all at different places in the spectrum in terms of where we're at neurologically, but not everybody has mental illness. And so, you know, it's a, there's a very huge difference between being sad and having depression and having clinical depression. And so I took my I took the meds because I needed to not feel my emotions. So, like, I became really deep into neuroanatomy and neurobiology during my recovery. There's something in the brain the, the brain can do. It has it has this trait called neuroplasticity. The brain can change if you change the environment that the brain is in. So if you want to be happier, you have to. Give it less time experiencing stress and hardship and toxicity so that your brain can change and have a whole different outlook on things. Your brain can physiologically change. And so what the meds did was they allowed me enough distance from my pain and my triggers to be able to get control of my of my mental illness. And and that took about eight months. I was on meds and I've been off meds for almost two years now because mm. now I'm able to battle, you know, to deal with it with diet and lifestyle. And even Ira will tell you, like where I am now, light years from where I am, from where I was when we first started working on the play a year ago in, in 2019, May of 2019. You know what I'm saying? So it's a it's a gradual process. And so like now I'm able to manage it with. I, I sleep. I have to sleep. I have to get eight hours. I don't care what I got to cancel. Um, I don't eat a ton of sugar. I try to eat as much of like an anti-inflammatory diet as possible because inflammation in the brain is connected to depression. Um, I avoid toxic relationships. So I am known for cutting people off if I have to. Like, it's that kind of stuff. But that stuff didn't work until meds gave me. The ability. So now I use CBD sometimes, but that's the closest thing to a drug that I use. Yeah, these are these are real. Th- First of all, I, um, you are a real advocate and spokesperson for mental health. I mean, you 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 not only are you living it. I don't know yeah. if you want this. Uh, What's the organization you're from? Nami. Oh yeah, I'm an ambassador with Nami now. Okay, great. Which is National Alliance on Mental Illness. Great. Yeah, and it, I mean you. Yeah, because you live it and and speak about it in a really profound accessible way I, like it's important you know and so I, I I'm excited for people to 
get a chance to see you on the Steppenwolf stage. Um, you have five shows. Five shows. And then, right. and I mean, the goal has always been, okay. And After that, what? Yeah, so if, uh, we did it at Northwestern, and, and as you know, I know a lot of people, and um, but people are like, oh, okay, yeah, maybe maybe I'll get out, you know. Uh, but then then the conversation, you know that show I talked about? We're doing it at Steppenwolf. <laughs> right. It changes then. It changes yeah. the whole thing. So the, yeah. the, it's... it's um, I've been around a lot in my life. This is amazing. Yeah. So, so give us the give us the dates and where we can go see it, and then social media stuff so we can follow uh, all that you're doing. And and the most interesting, it's January 30th to February 2nd. It's just the first weekend of Black History Month, and that fifth show, that Saturday matinee, it just got added. Like this, right? Because is, you already been sold out of these yeah, others. Yeah, we've been sold yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's significant. Congratulations. Thank on that. you. Yeah. I had no idea that was coming. I'm gonna be real with you. Yeah. So we just added this extra show. Um, unfortunately, probably by the time people hear this, yeah, this it's probably gonna be sold, sold out. out. Yeah, true, yeah. true. Um, but yeah, but, but, hopefully but the, the move yeah, after that. Yeah, is I mean, a the, new the, there are enough theaters coming that I, I really believe right. that we'll go somewhere else for a longer run and. I think, uh, let me just add that, you know, I think the barriers have broken, especially in my lifetime, for a lot of things, even though uh, without getting political with, with what's happening in, in Washington, some of them have gone back up that I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. But I think the barrier of mental illness, she's putting a nice, a really good footprint saying it's not a taboo. You know, millions of people deal with this and we're going to talk about it in a way uh, just like the LBGTQ uh, movement and, and get it out there and make it okay. And she's she's doing that. One of the things that is important to me, like you know how you create it louder than a bomb and it has, like not only is it this living thing, but there's an yes. aesthetic to it. There's a culture to it. Like it is a, there is a way of life that if people want to be involved in it, they can leave whatever isn't working for them and get very engaged in this experience. And And it's been so impactful. Like that's, what I want to do, like I do mental health events. I call them mental health turnups and stuff like that. And they have been music and culture oriented. A bunch of people in Chicago started doing that too. I'm not salty that people started doing it. Just acknowledge when your inspirations, there's nothing unoriginal about being inspired. And I started doing that. And I do, uh, you know, I go on stage. I be out on, I be downtown with protest signs talking about mental health and I do it on stage as well. And what I really want to do, because I, like I told you, I am an alternative black girl. I am very, I own my alternative and punk roots. And so I strongly feel that, you know, over here in this world I'm creating, it's a little alternative. It's a little bit, it leans a little bit left. It's a little bit off center. But when you come here, there is an aesthetic and there isn't an environment and there is a culture that's about this wellness conversation. But it's also about your empowerment and it's also about being happy. And we can have depression, but it don't mean that we can't return to a space of happiness when we are not being triggered or when, because depression is chemical. Right. And so chemicals, we know, in our bodies are not always doing the same things 24 seven at the same times. So when you come to this space like there's a space here that understands what's going on and you welcome here. And that's what I'm trying to create through my play, Get Out Alive, through my documentary, Happy Songs About Anything, Happy, about Unhappy Things, through my performance series, which the mental health turnups and kickbacks that I'm doing with Peter, Jason, and Shala. Like, these are things that I'm trying to help create a culture and contribute to this conversation in my way. So if you ever want to find me, just at Nikki Lynette on all social media. I'm not fancy, and I speak back to everybody to speak to me. Oh, that's great. Thank you. And Ira, p- people can get you where? where? Where can people be in tune? Well, uh, 
Because when I'm old, I don't, I, All right, I didn't know if you, yeah, I, I, listen, I don't know if you're, no, I don't do, you know, uh, I mean, I have Facebook. I, um. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, hey, y'all, um, thank you both so much for, for being here, but also for, you know, creating this really important work. I'm very excited to see it at, at Steppenwolf coming up at the end of January. And uh, again, thank you for being you. in the corner store. Appreciate y'all. Shout out our super producer, DJ Cashera. Big up boss man, Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our Instagram. It's corner underscore pod on IG, on Twitter. Tell us who you want to see in the corner store. And also, please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our Patreon account. It's patreon.com corner store underscore pod. The corner store is brought to you by Stolen Spirits.